0: Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, grab a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and then find chapter 4 in that book. If you need a Bible under a seat close by, you'll find one. Grab that, turn, us, turn with us there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you don't own a Bible, leave with that. That's our gift to you. And then, hey, before we jump into the message, one thing I just want to make an announcement of. Uh, in a couple weekends, it's like uh, June 16th, I think it'd be June 16th, 17th. 18, something like that. Um, one of our sister churches up in the inner city of Chicago, Harvest Chicago West, is throwing a, a massive outreach to their neighborhood. And we've been telling you about this for a couple weeks, but um, they need hands to help. And we need a couple more people who'd be willing to go be a part of this trip. So here's what we're doing. Um, there's a chance that we'll bump this back. We'll leave on like a Friday night, go up, serve them on Saturday at their outreach, go to church with them on Sunday up there, and then you'd be back by Sunday evening. And so if you, if you're, weekend is kind of like wide open, the 16th, the weekend of the 16th. And you'd be interested at in maybe as a family or grabbing a friend, going up and serving at one of our inner city sister churches that weekend. It's like 250 bucks. That covers everything. Your your two nights in a hotel, your travel, your food, all that. Um, if you're interested in that, Gary and Carol Wingles, they're back in the tech booth. They're leading that trip. Just go see them right after this service and uh, they will follow up with you on more details on that. So I hope we can go serve our sister church real well that week weekend. And then uh, second thing before we jump in here, um, we just preach where the the text takes us. And so um, we are are diving into a topic today where 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 takes us of sexual immorality. And we always just, I I always just like to give a heads up for you. Maybe if your kids are sitting in here next to you and you you don't know if they're ready for a topic like this, um, I'm going to pray before I jump into my message. And just feel free if you need to just to lead them out. That's a time for you to do that. But um, before Before you're too quick to do that, because you're like, oh, this is going to make for a really awkward lunch, Um, just I want us to think about this. Um, And full transparency, a lot of my first discussions about this issue of sex and sexual immorality happened at a slumber party heading into sixth grade on one of my buddy's trampolines. And guess who the teachers were? Other middle school boys, right? And so before you're like too quick to rush out because you feel like this could get awkward, is maybe let's talk about this in the church house, huh? And then go home and have lunch and be able to follow up and process with them. And so, but I always just want to give that opportunity. You as parents know best how to disciple your kids before we get in here. So let me pray. And then we're getting into it. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we get each and every week to gather as your people, to open your word, to sing our praises to you, because Lord, we exist for your glory, nothing else. Lord, every breath in our lungs is from you and all of it is to be used to glorify you. And so God, I pray right now, as we spend the next half hour plus in your word, God, just soaking it in, uh, letting it soak into our heart. Lord, would it, it change us? Lord, would it truly change us? Would we not walk out the same that we've walked in? Lord, now come speak through your word here. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a, uh, there's a question that all of us have searched out the answer for intensely in critical junctures of our life. There's a, this, this question is a question that as we've searched out the answers for, we've poured over the God's word looking for it. We've poured ourselves out in prayer in search of the answer to this question right here. The answer to this question has maybe paralyzed us because we didn't know what to do without the answer to it. The answer to this question, when we didn't have it, it created fear in us from making the wrong decision. What is the question that I'm talking about? God, what is your will for me in this? Anyone ask that? I think the first time maybe you came across this as a 17 or 18-year-old high school senior. And your whole life, every next year, had just been planned out for you. After kindergarten, you go to first grade. After first grade, you go to second grade. And all of a sudden now, you find yourself as a senior, like, and you feel like the whole world is out before you. Like, what do I do? God, what is your will for me? Where do you want me to go to college? What do you want me to do next? I think as we walk down the path of getting deeper and deeper into a dating relationship with someone, we ask this question. God. Is it your will for me to marry her? Is it your will for me to marry him? A guy in kind of midlife and five years ago didn't see any sort of a midlife career change on the horizon, but all of a sudden now he's sensing this pull over to this new career, this new company, and he's going, God, like, what's your will for me in this? And how do I know and all of us at critical junctures of our life, we've poured ourselves out in prayer. We've poured over God's word. We've asked this question, God, what do you want me to do? What is your will for me in this? Um, I think when we raise this question, we, also, we often raise the God's will question in the directive sense. We're looking for direction. We're trying to answer, what do I do? or who, or where. But there's something that's so ironic as you study God's word when it brings up this topic of God's will. When God brings up the topic of his will, it is often way less about where he is taking us and way more about what he is making us. Think about that. Almost every time you come across this idea of God's will, I get excited and I'm like, sweet, you're going to tell me where to go to college or who to marry or who to what. And I finish the sentence and it's way more about what God is trying to do in me. And I'm so excited today because we stumble on here in 1 Thessalonians 4, one chapter of the clearest, most direct passages on the will of God for our life. You want that? Huh? You want that? In fact... In this passage, we're going to find these words. For this is the will of God. And then it's going to answer it. So all of us have asked, God, just tell me what your will is and I do it. God's going to tell us what his will is right here today. And then it gets better. As the paragraph continues, he's not only going to tell us what our will is, what, not what our will is, what his will is. He's then going to tell us how we pursue that. And then he's going to tell us why in the world it's so crucial that we give our lives to pursuing this, his will. But before we get too excited and we think this is going to answer the questions I've been searching after career change. Is the person right? Is this the college? Um, Where God goes with this passage is not at all where we think he's going to go with it how he answers, how he finishes that statement, for this is the will of God. The end of that sentence will leave us scratching our head. We'll go, what? How did that tell me anything about the will of God? In fact, let me really confuse you. What if when it comes to the will of God, he speaks way more about sexual purity than he does about telling us where to go to college, who to marry, midlife career change? You confused yet? Because this is exactly where this passage goes. What's God's will for our life? Let's let God answer it himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to, what's the word? How you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what kind, of, what well, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, I just want to stop here. I just want us to get our bearings on where we're at in this letter. Because remember, this is a letter Paul wrote to a group of new believers in a city called Thessalonica. And we, we've put in to help us understand God's word, kind of the chapter breakdowns, the verse breakdowns. But Paul grabbed a piece of paper and he got out a pen and he began to write to these people. In the first three, what we call chapters, he's devoted all to nothing but encouragement. You guys are doing great. You're doing great. I know you're suffering. I know you're facing some hard things. You're doing great. Keep going. But as we turn the page now to chapter four, what we're going to find is he, the encouragement now goes to exhortation. I want to encourage you, but now I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to exhort you. I want to leave you with some things to do. And as we turn to verse three right here, we're going to find it. What is God's will for our life? You ready? Wow. We're ready. We're fired up for it. For this, verse three, for this is the will of God. What are the next two words? What? for this is the will of God for me, my sanctification? God, that didn't, that didn't tell me at all where I'm supposed to go to college. That doesn't help me one bit know if I'm supposed to marry her. That doesn't give me any indication whether you want me to make this cross-country move or, or whatever. How in the world does this help me know what God, what, what your will is for me? But maybe it does. What does God mean when he says that his will, for this is my will for you, your sanctification. If this is the will of God for our life, we better know what sanctification means. Am I right? So big churchy word, um, the evangelical dictionary of theology, a riveting vacation read for y'all, okay? Grab that poolside. The evangelical dictionary of theology, I love the simplicity in which it, it, it defines this word sanctification. Plain and simple as this, to make holy. Think about this. What is God's will for your life to make you look more like Jesus? Can I get a name into that? What is God's will for your life that every day when I got up, I'd progressively be looking more like his son, that I'd be set apart for holiness? Now, holiness is something that it's not as cool to preach on these days. God is after our holiness. He wants a people. He's always been. When you start this book from the very beginning in this book called Genesis all the way to the end, God has always been after a people set apart unto him. He's after our holiness. This is his will for us. Let's just answer the question. Let's get it down on the paper right in front of us. What is God's will for me? My sanctification. But again, I know you're unsettled with this because I've been unsettled with it all week. But I want God's will to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Like, how does this help me? Does God not care? Is God just absent from the big decisions of my life? Does he not care where I go to college? Does he not care who I marry? Does he not not care of whether we make this midlife career change or this move across the country? No, God cares. He deeply cares. He's deeply interwoven in those decisions. But we need to think correctly about this whole will of God thing because God's just told us his will is that we'd become more like Jesus. So, God, where do you want me to go to college? Is it, is it Liberty or is it IU? Is it the University of Michigan or the Ohio State University? I can tell you unequivocally, if it's either of those two, you are outside of the will of God. <laughs> but, God, where do I, where do I go? Well, Brock, you know what my will is for you? That you'd become more like Jesus. Which one helps you carry out my will for you? God, do I marry her? Do I, do I marry him? Will she make you more like Jesus? Will he spur you on to a greater following after of Jesus? God, do I make this midlife career change? Am I calling you out by great faith right now because I want to sanctify you in the process of what I'm calling you to? How freeing is this when we think about the will of God? The, the, it's way more about God getting after our heart because, because he, he, his will for us is that we'd look more like Jesus. And if Liberty University is going to do that, great. If marrying that person will do that, then Yes because he's after us looking more like Jesus. But now this passage gets so cool because not only has it left us with God, what's your will for me? He now tells us, here's how you can pursue after your holiness, your sanctification. Here's how you can pursue after my will. And it goes like, where it goes, we're like, I've never tied the will of God to this topic, verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Have you ever tied so closely your sexual purity to the will of God with your life? Think let's just start from the back and back up. God says, "I want you sexually pure." Why, God? Because my will for you is your holiness, your sanctification. And he knows, think about this now, he knows that one of the greatest hurdles to our pursuit of his will of holiness is in this area of sexual purity. Like he could have said a lot of things there. What's my will for you? That you'd be holy. And now let me address this aspect. For some reason in God's wisdom, he went there first because he knew that one of the greatest hurdles to the pursuit of our holiness is this thing called sexual immorality. And so he says, how do you pursue my will for you, your holiness, you abstain from this. Now, we, we understand what this idea of abstaining from something. We talk about abstinence, but let's get really clear. What does God mean when he tells us to abstain from sexual immorality? Here's what it means. Keep away. Separate yourself from. Don't go there. Last weekend, long weekend holiday, so Erica and I took off for uh, an overnight back to my parents' house in Michigan and... Um, have any of you seen the movie, we, we Bought a Zoo? Have you seen this movie, We Bought a Zoo? Raise your hand if you have. Um, so my parents live in the middle of farm, farmland, middle of nowhere, Michigan. One of their neighbors built a zoo. I'm not, I'm not talking like bought some deer and put a fence around. I'm talking giraffes, <laughs> baboons. Like that's my son feeding the giraffe in the middle of farmland, Alto, Michigan. How do you even do that? Yeah, I'll take two drafts and a baboon. Like, they ship in boxes. Like, I don't even know how you... And as I'm walking around, I'm like, the liability. You got alligators in your back pond. But as I'm walking around this zoo, um, I think it's comical that you come up to the alligator pond and there's a sign there that says, keep out. Well, thank you. Because one of my first instincts was to just hop the fence and dive in. Like... Why is there a sign there that says, keep out? Because if you go in, you're not coming back out. And then you travel a little farther off to the baboon exhibit. And again, another sign, keep out of baboon exhibit. And if the sign needed to continue, it'd say, because baboon will rip your face off. It's what they do. And then you come up to this this little tortoise pen, not little, massive tortoise. and, And it says, please do not reach your hand into exhibit. And like, there's this little kid there like in the work. like, no, 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 no. Why? Because your hand will come back without fingers. All the way throughout this zoo. And you've been there. You say, do not go here. Keep away. Stop. And when we read a do not go there sign at the zoo, we, we don't even question it. Think about this though. God has just given us a do not go there sign in his word. Keep away. Abstain. And yet as I look at the sexual sin from my own past, I would see that sign and I would go, hmm, I wonder what's over here. And I I don't want it to devour my life, but if it could lead to a couple moments of just some momentary pleasure here. Why is it? That in seasons of my life, I've had greater respect for the signs at the zoo than I have for the signs in God's word of what to keep away from. I didn't hop into the alligator pond and go, hey, let's see how this goes. And God says, abstain. Don't toy with it. Don't hover around it. Don't think that you can wade into it just a little bit and get out before it hurts you too much. What is my will for your life? Your sanctification. And then he tells us one of the greatest catalysts to pursuing this. How do I pursue this? Answer is this, by abstaining from sexual immorality. And now I want to be like, I don't want to be that preacher who just preaches a message like stop sinning sexually. Don't we all know that walking in here? Like we all know, like if you're in here today and you're being crushed under sexual sin, you're like, yeah, kind of knew that walking in here. The issue isn't that I need to know that intellectually. The issue is how, how do I stop sinning sexually? How do do I have, okay, I want to abstain from sexual immorality. How do I do this? Hear this now. Um, So often when we focus on especially this topic of sexual sin and we read, abstain from sexual immorality, all of the focus goes to what we need to run from. So all of the focus goes, us looking over our shoulders, like running from sexual immorality. We have to change this. We have to, yes, know what we are running from, but we have to know what we are pursuing. The desire to please Jesus must consume our desire to please our flesh in the moment. Hear this now. If You, you can tune out all the rest of the sermon. I don't care, but you got to hear this. Nothing changes until your desires change. To say it like this, we do what we do Ultimately, because we want what we want. So it doesn't matter. Let let the simplicity of this sink in. It doesn't matter what I say I want. My actions always reveal to me what my heart actually wants. This is why we can put all the internet accountability we want on a computer or phone, which should be there, by the way, and this is why after a, a, a great mess up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend one weekend and we walk away and go, I'm not gonna do that again. I'm not gonna do that again. I'm not gonna do that again. And there we go the very next week in trying to find ways around the internet filters, walking back down the path of sexual sin. Why? Because nothing changes until our desires change. We have to long to please Jesus. We have to long to feast on Jesus over above feasting on our flesh. The the book of James says it like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. We are lured away by our own desires. And nothing changes until our desires change. But that leads to a follow-up question that I hope you're asking. How does desire change? I know I'm not supposed to sin sexually. I get that I, until I desire Jesus more than I desire my sin, nothing will change. How does desire change? Three ways, three ways we desire Jesus more than sin. Number one is this. You have to know him. Hold on. Don't get to what's two and three yet. Don't skim over this Grown up in the church your whole life, person. Don't skim over this, grew up in a great Christian family, know how to look the part, talk the talk, know how to do. Do you know him? Do you know that you know that you know him? Is there an intimate abiding relationship with Jesus going on in your heart? Because we have to get the theology of what happens when we truly know Jesus Christ before Jesus becomes Lord of our life. The bad news was really, really bad. God's word tells us that we were enemies of God and we were slaves to sin. So imagine this post here. Label it sin. And picture the shackles and chains. We're just chained to that. And then you want to hear something awesome that happens when we know Jesus? The moment Jesus becomes Lord Power of that sin, like a sawzall to those chains, the power of that sin is gone. We're unchained from the power of that. It has no power over us any longer. And you're like, it still feels like it's got power. I think I know him. It still feels like it's got power. Well, because sometimes I see these Christians, right? And I've been there where it's like the chains have been gone and we just kind of hover around the pole. You're kind of fun and I kind of like you still. And Run from the pole. You're unchained from that. It's got no power. But listen, until we know him, the power of sin is still there. Do you know that you know that you know him? And then once you know him, this is crucial. You begin to feed your appetite for Jesus. What does that even mean? You, You begin to devour his word because you want to know him more and more. And I get it. You're like, but man, then I come to these parts of scripture, and I'm like, what is this saying? Keep going. Keep eating. He will make it clear in time but I wake up some days and I don't feel like get in it. Devour it. It's changing your heart. You devour his word. You start to fill your day with worship, not just on Sunday, but every day you get in the car and you put worship on and you're worshiping your way to work. And it's renewing your mind as you go. And you're like, yeah, but I'm not, am not a big music person. Like I'm so out on that. When you read scripture, it says, sing to the Lord. Praise his name. I was so like that before. I was like, macho, I'm not a big music guy. Well, God's kind of a big music guy. And if we think we're too macho for that, there's this guy named King David. He was kind of a stud. Remember like the picture of him? It's like some teen. I just, I just imagine like David as a teen with like the Rambo thing on and like stuff around his bicep, just standing over a giant holding up his head. It's kind of manly, guys. Guess what? He wrote songs for fun. He was kind of a music guy. You start to worship him and you start to get swept away. As you're singing the truths of the word to the Lord, it changes your desire. You just start to feed your appetite for Jesus and your desires begin to to change because the Psalms say this, taste and see that he is good. He's so good. And you begin to devour him and you're like, he is so good. He is so much better than that secret little wandering off into the world of pornography. And you start to taste and see that he is good, and you're like, he is so much better than than that affair out there that's trying to tempt me. Like, he is so good. Like, what, what used to look so pleasurable to me has become so disgusting because I'm tasting and seeing And he is good. But then on the flip side of this, we got to go to the third one here. As we feed our appetite for Jesus, we got to starve our appetite for sin. If you feed sexual sin, it will grow. Sexual sin is kind of like having a pet lion. You know, you get a pet lion, it's a little lion cub aw, it's cute. Ain't going to hurt no one. Roll around on the floor with that little guy there. In order to keep it alive, you got to feed it. And as you feed a lion, here's what it turns into. That's not going to end well for you. You have a pet lion, you feed it long enough, and you're going to be the one that's being eaten. You have sexual sin in your life, you feed it long enough, it will devour you. We starve we starve this appetite for sin, we feed this this appetite for Jesus, and, and there's, there's this what we're running away from and what we're pursuing as, aspect that has to go into abstaining. And so we're told, here's what my will is for you, your holiness, your sanctification. We're told how we pursue that by abstaining from sexual sin. Now it gets even better. God goes, now let me build the case for why this is so important that you pursue after these things. Uh, pick it up here, verse four. He says um, that each one of you, know how to control his own body. And then he says, here's how I want you to control your own body. Two words there, in what? What's it say? In in holiness and and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let me tell you who Paul's writing to here. He's writing to a group of new, fresh Jesus followers who have been a part of the, The the pagan rituals, the pagan religiosity of their day. And in this day, and in a culture like Thessalonica, prostitution ran rampant. There were concubines. You had a wife that just kind of brings stability to the home, but it was just understood that men would be going out sleeping with concubines and prostitutes. Sexual activity was part of the pagan religious practices of the day. There were prostitutes in the temples, Paul is saying, I know what you guys are coming out of. And I know the culture that's raging around you. I'm telling you, abstain from sexual immorality in a hypersexualized culture. Does that ring a bell with any other cultures that you know of? The call from God to us, abstain from sexual immorality. I know, I know, in a hyper-sexualized culture that you live but why? Why does it say in verse four that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor? There's some rich theology we have to get about our body. My body's mine. I do what I want with it with whoever I want with it. No, that, Not at all. Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter six says. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a what? You tell me. Your body is a temple. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And I know you probably read this verse before and you you probably heard of all this before, but you need to get the theology of this. Think about where in the history of this book, where the presence of God was manifest. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, no one was getting in there except the high priest one day a year. And if he dropped that in there, they tied a rope around his leg and they just pulled him back out. The awe for the Holy of Holies, the reverence for the Holy of Holies, the, the respect for the Holy of Holies. This is where the presence of God manifests Himself. Jesus comes dies on a cross, veil is torn in two. Now the spirit of God is dwelling inside of every single one of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and we become temples of the Holy Spirit. I knew the verse. I knew it all intellectually. I grew up in the church. How many times was that verse quoted to me by the people who love me? Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And off I would run into sexual sin how I didn't know at the heart level, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why do we pursue abstaining from sexual immorality? The first reason is this, because my body is set apart to honor God. My life is set apart for the honor of God. My body is set apart for the honor of God. It is not mine to do whatever I want with whoever I want. But he keeps going here. He keeps building the why that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Did you hear what just happened there? I think one of the greatest lies of the enemy when it comes to this topic of sexual sin is that this is something that's just between me and God. Just between me and God. No one else is going to get hurt in this. Just between me and God. That is the farthest thing from the truth. That no one transgress and wrong his brother When we sin sexually, the ripple effect of pain just radiates out from us on those closest to us and beyond. We cannot sin sexually and it not affect the relationships in our life. If I walk right now into the world of sexual sin with my life, my wife gets crushed in the process of that. My sons get crushed in the process of that. My family gets hurt in the process of that. And this church gets hurt in the process of that. Sexual sin never stays isolated. Why is God like you have to pursue this? Because your body's set apart. But secondly, you know this because God knows my sexual sin deeply, 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 deeply hurts others. And now, timeout. Ready to call a timeout? You need a timeout? A point like this. I recognize that there are those of us sitting in this room who've been deeply wounded and deeply hurt by another sexual sin. And maybe this was months ago, maybe this was years ago, maybe this was decades ago. And, and when you hear a verse like this, and you see a point in a sermon like this, there, there's a scar, there's a scar but God's brought healing to that issue from the past. Forgiveness has been sought. Forgiveness has been granted. Restoration has happened. And now you come and you sit in church on a day like this and and the preacher starts railing on, when you sin sexually, you hurt others and there's something inside your heart that just wants to pull all that back out and just hang it back over that person's head and make them pay for what they did. Listen to me now. The moment you granted forgiveness... You told them, I choose to no longer hold this over your head. And I just want those of you that restoration has happened, please do not take this point of the sermon. And go back and try to dig and open something where God has brought healing to. Amen? But then... He finishes it out here. A third, third why. Why should I pursue this? Because my body set apart to honor God. Because God, God knows my sexual sin deeply hurts others. And lastly, and most importantly, because sexual sin completely disregards God. Verses seven and eight. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you get what Paul's saying there? He goes, guys, I want you to, as I write this to you, I want you to know this. This isn't a Paul thing. This is a God thing. That for you to not obey what I'm writing here, it's not like you're disobeying me, you're disobeying God. And as you disobey God in this, it's a complete disregard to him. How's that apply to us? I'm going to kick you a bit here. You ready? You're like, you've been kicking us the whole sermon. So for us to listen to the word of God today on this topic and to go home this week and walk right back into the world of pornography we've been living in or walk right back into the sexual immorality with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, to walk right back into sexual sin, understand this. It is an utter disregard for your Maker. It's a complete disregard of God. No matter what we say, we can come to church, do the church thing, talk the Christian talk, put on the plastic look, be like, we got it all together. I regard the Lord. I regard the Lord. And if sexual sin is the pattern of our life behind the scenes, What our life is saying is shouting louder than what our words are speaking. And let me tell you, there ain't no holier-than-thou thing going on with this because that was seasons of my life. The Christian foundation my parents brought me up in, the the, the churches I grew up in that preached the word, that, that stood up and preached messages like this, and then my young foolishness walking off into that weekend thinking I could do whatever I want. Understand. This this is more than you're sinning against your own body. This is more than it hurts the people. This is a complete disregard for our God when we walk off into sexual sin. Our passage today. If someone asks you, what was church about Sunday? All of this gets summarized in what verse 3 has to say. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. God, what's your will for my life? Your holiness, Brock. My will for you to look like Jesus, Brock. Grow more and more and more of that. And yeah, there's going to be bumps along the road and you're never going to hit it perfectly, but make that pursuit of your life. That is my will for you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Amen? Now, let me say this. I understand a message like today digs up some very hard things because I recognize right now some of us who are sitting in here are getting crushed in sexual sin and in moments of tiny transparency we tell other guys ah, I'm struggling a little you know I'm struggling my eyes are wandering I'm struggling and the reality is you're not struggling a little you're getting your butts kicked been there. Oh, I'm struggling struggling a little. No, no, no. I get that. Some of us in here are getting crushed under the weight of the sexual sin thing. And I get that a message like this if not preached with the gospel at the forefront only heaps more pain, shame, weight and burden on your shoulders as you walk out of here today. And so if you're getting crushed under sexual sin, can I give you some gospel reminders here this morning? If you know Jesus, the power of sin has been broken. And if you don't know Jesus and you're sick and tired of this and the carnage it is causing your life and the life of those around you. Knowing Jesus will give you the only power to break this that's possible out there. When you know Jesus, he's more powerful than this. The gospel preaches to us that a savior has come and he's lived a sinless life and he's died a sinner's death and he's defeated in that death the power of sin because then after he was laid in a tomb he rose again and when he rose again he rose to victory over sin and death and the moment we know him in faith victory over sin is ours but I don't feel victorious. I don't feel like a victor. You're not the victor. Your Savior's the victor. And every day, if this is crushing you, every day you need to start on your knees and say, Lord, I can't get through another day without turning to the empty well of that. You have to do it on my behalf. You're the victor. I'm claiming your victory over this. You're crushed by this. You hear this. Lift up your head. There's hope. There's victory. You don't, have, you don't have to walk the rest of your existence on this earth tethered to that nasty thing that's wreaking carnage across your family. There's victory. There is victory in the gospel. And I recognize a message like this for some of us digs up just shame of past sin, just shame. I mean, and I'm prepping this this week. I'm like, gosh, the utter disregard for the Lord I had in seasons of my life. And a message like this digs that shame back up, and it's like it sets it on a platter right before us and you find it very hard to believe that God could forgive you for that. And you just feel dirty. It brings a pit into your stomach when you think about it. May a gospel reminder saturate your mind here today. That when Jesus took your sin, he took your shame with it. You get that? When Jesus took your sin, He took the shame with it. The gospel speaks to you today that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He no longer is holding that shame cloud over your head. He has justified you. It means he's declared you righteous in his sight. When he looks at you, he sees you wrapped in the righteous robes of his son. Do you believe that? No, deeper than the theology. Do you believe it in your heart? That when he looks at you, he sees you wrapped in the righteousness of his son. That's how much. That's the extravagant love of our God. That while we're wallowing in the shame, he's like, no, 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 no no shame cloud over your head. When I took the sin, I took the shame with it. And I also know some of us sit here with a heart that's been deeply crushed by another sexual sin in your life, potentially crushed in such a way that it altered the trajectory of your life. Would you hear the gentle whisper of the gospel this morning? That your savior is in the business of restoring that which has been utterly broken. That he's the master of taking the shattered remains of your heart and one by one gathering gathering them together off the floor piecing them back together in such a way that you set it on a shelf and it's a trophy of his grace and you point to it and you go, let me tell you what God did right there. Would you allow him to do the beautiful work of restoration to your heart that he so desperately wants to do? Would you stand with me? As we close, I just want us to sing. I want us to sing as our closing prayer here. And why we're singing this song, it's because some of us in here who are being crushed under sexual sin, we need an anthem today. We need a victory anthem. There's a verse in the song that says, and now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. It's his power and his alone that will grant you the victory you need over this. Some of you need an anthem today to let the shame cloud pass away. Chorus of the song says, Jesus paid it all, all, All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. We both know some of the deepest stains, some of the most crimson stains have been stains of sexual sin in our past. And then he says, he washed it white as snow. And all of us just need to hear Carol, can you go to that third verse? All of us need this. And when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. we're going to stand before a throne. This whole sexual sin thing is not going to be a part at all of what this new order, this new life he's creating for us. He'll have redeemed us all. So I just want to sing this as the victory anthem for whatever part of the song you need that to be for your heart today. Would we sing this now as our closing